Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by chef owner of Mattia Breads, Matt Swint. If you don't know, uh, he is mainly focused on the wholesale side of the bread making business. So he's not somebody who has uh, just a standalone retail shop or anything. He actually uses a commissary kitchen production facility over on the east side of Columbus. And we get into everything, just kind of his family coming up. Uh, his career, you know, he was making pizzas for a while and kind of managing a pizza restaurant before he even founded Mattia and started doing the bread stuff. And then we get into how coronavirus really affected his business and how it forced him to adapt and change. He had a food truck at one point. We talk about that too as well and just kind of the whole situation. And And it's a really interesting episode. I feel like a lot of people, when they think bread, they think somebody who has a retail shop, somebody who is, you know, making loaves of bread kind of every day. A lot of people think, you know, Dan the Baker. And Dan the Baker is awesome. But this is not Dan the Baker. Matt Swint is doing stuff a little bit differently. And it's a little bit different setup than what Dan the Baker would have. So it's a completely different perspective. And I think it's really important for people to hear the perspective too as well, because it's just not somebody that you hear doing interviews and, and talking on podcasts and everything like that too as well. You know, it's always kind of the Nancy Silvertons and stuff like that who usually get a lot of the press. But stuff that Matt is doing is really, really cool and really super important and also delicious. I mean, he's making bread for Ray Ray's, Barrios, which is uh, both those places are amazing. I mean, Ray Ray's was James Beard nominated uh, last year for best restaurant, Great Lakes. Uh, semi-finalist, I think. Wario's is kind of like this awesome new sub shop that sells out like every day that they're open, basically. He's doing breads for Cleaver and Jay Clevin and them over there. He's also doing stuff for Rye River Social and, and a whole bunch of other places too as well. And there are some places, some grocery markets and stuff that you can actually find his breads too. But for the most part, he's partnered with a bunch of different restaurants and food trucks and everything to deliver high quality breads that those places need because they don't have their own bread program or they don't want to have their own bread program. And they'd rather have Matt do it because it's just delicious bread and it really fits, you know, the style of their sandwich or whatever they're doing. It's definitely a super interesting and I really appreciate Matt coming on the podcast and taking some time and talking about just kind of his career and everything too as well. So you can follow him uh, on Instagram at Mattia Breads. I'll also hit him up on Facebook too as well. They have the Facebook page. But without any kind of further delay, this is my interview with chef owner Matt Swint of Mattia Breads. I appreciate you taking some time, like I said, coming on the podcast. Always appreciative of everybody who's doing these, I think, recording on mostly Monday and Tuesdays because that's kind of when everybody's off. But yeah, definitely wanted to, haven't had any kind of bakers or anything on the podcast, really, some people that have dabbled in it. But you yourself are a little bit different style of baker because you do mostly wholesaling, which I want to get into. Like with most people that we have, especially from the Columbus uh, city on the podcast, there's not a whole lot of information. There's, you know, some one-off articles here, there, stuff like that that you can find. But we'll start kind of at the beginning. I mean, I know you're originally from, I think, Cleveland, right? How did you kind of get started in the industry? Was it just something in high school that you kind of fell into or family or... It was a combination of things. Thanks for uh, having me, by the way. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was very much a family thing. Not that my family was in the business necessarily. It's an immigrant family, so it's a pretty normal story, right? So they're from a um, country called Slovenia, which I tell everybody, if you go to the top of Italy and you hang a right, that's Slovenia. So my family came over right around World War One, something like that. But the family was just always in the kitchen and we were just always cooking. And and like a lot of European families um, that, you know, that's that's a pretty regular story. Right. Whether you're Italian or what have you. So 
uh, it was always a really comfortable place. If all my grandmas and aunties and whatnot were puttering around the kitchen, uh, I was just for some reason always in there. And bread was a big thing since we were just we kids. You know, it was just always it seemed to always be a centerpiece of, of the table. Didn't really matter the holiday or, you know, if it was just a visit, there was always this big loaf of bread on the table and grandma would be cutting up slices every morning and toasting them. And it's just a memory that that sticks with me. You know, I didn't really find anything like that again until I got much older and searched it out. Yeah, it's always been a thing that I've been attracted to. And I, I had no intention of making it my life at all. Most of my family worked in restaurants and it was something that you did when you were working your way kind of through college. It wasn't necessarily a livelihood. It was the same thing I did, you know, bartended, worked in restaurants, that sort of thing to make money, you know, and then, you know, for some reason, actually, the, the actual reason is that the bottom fell out of the construction industry. I was stuck without a job and no companies were hiring. And it was really kind of a weird situation. And I found myself having the moment to kind of reflect and say, you know, what is it that you wanted to do? And food had always been there. You know, I mean, I was always cooking for my wife and before it was she was my wife for my girlfriend and all the other uh, women that I had dated and, and friends and whatnot. It was just always something that I was doing. So it came time where I thought, you know, maybe I think about doing this seriously. And uh, that was kind of where I was off and running. When you were growing up, just like in high school and stuff, was your first job in a restaurant or anything like that? It was my very first job. I got hired when I was 15 and it was down here. Uh, we moved down here when I was pretty young from Cleveland. My first job was at GD Ritzy's, the original, obviously. And it was at the corner of 161 and Cleveland Avenue. And uh, I was 15. The second night I worked there, they put me on the flat top and I was the I was the grill guy, GD Ritzy's. I think I made it three months, but at 15, I didn't know, you know, kind of my ass from my elbow type of thing. And it was a whole different world. You know, they were there long after I left and there was always a mess the next day. And I could never quite figure out what was going on when I wasn't there. But it was uh, it was fun. It was definitely an education. Going through high school, most high school kids, it's kind of that's pretty much like the only job usually they can kind of get right off the start. And I think that's kind of why so many people stay within the industry. But you mentioned kind of you wound up getting in the construction industry and everything like that. Was that also in your family and when why you went kind of down that path before switching over after the economic fallout? Yeah. Um, so it was on my dad's side of the family. They were... Um, him and his brothers had had a uh, construction business when they were younger. And, you know, I remember as a, as a real young guy kind of hanging out at the job sites and that sort of thing. And so construction was like the opposite side of cooking, right? I mean, they were both heavily dependent upon learning a craft. You know, you had to use your hands, your, your brain and your body. It was physically taxing. And for some reason that checked all the boxes for me. So the reason construction tended to win out was because uh, you could do it outside during the summer, get a nice tan and a workout. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, that tends to be a little more important than being stuck in a sweaty box at the back of a restaurant. So and I, I actually had been going to college for fine arts, believe it or not. So, you know, I thought I was going to be a painter at some point. And, and oddly enough, I never really saw myself as getting a job as a graphic illustrator or a design or, you know, any number of things that would have actually made money in the art business. It was always either going to be painting or sculpture or nothing. I guess to some extent, I'm a little too grounded. <laughs> Maybe that's what I try to tell myself. Listen, I'm, I'm too normal to be a good artist, which I imagine every artist that never sells a thing says the exact same thing. So 
in any case, the construction had always been there. So uh, that was the kind of the thing that I knew was going to kind of be my livelihood because I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Like I said, it was only through an odd set of circumstances that uh, things kind of got derailed. Did you wind up finishing art school? I went about halfway through. And it's one of those things where you kind of wish you had. And I was always kind of torn. I, I was I was never all that great of a student unless I was really, really into the material. You know, then I tended to be pretty with it. I was always torn between the desire to work and learn and the desire to just learn. And work and learn seemed to always went out for me. You know, I always felt like, well, I get to make money and I'm learning something. But it had been beat into, you know, our, our skulls, especially for, you know, us Gen Xers. I'm, I'm quite a bit older than probably most of your guests, by the way, which is perfectly fine. You know, we, we were all taught that college is the way. You go to college, you get yourself a good job and you plant yourself there and you get your retirement and it's good, right? And, and we stopped buying that somewhere around 1990, I think, probably. <laughs> but, but for the first part, that was the plan. So. so you spend all these years kind of in the construction industry and then it's what, like 2008, 2009, the economy kind of falls out. Nobody's really hiring. What kind of gave you the idea to go... Well, yeah, let me let me try the food industry. Yeah. So I had been doing, you know, both. Right. So I, I was still bartending while I was doing construction. You know, during the winters, it would slow down. You'd, you'd pick up a, a restaurant job or what have you. And, you know, so it's not like it was ever far away. It just wasn't the kind of thing that I necessarily if I was going to do anything, I thought, you know, maybe me and a buddy would open a bar at some point. Well, I, like I looking back on it now, it's, it's much easier. At the time, I remember a lot of confusion. And I remember my my wife being none too happy about the amount of confusion. But it was it was literally a couple of months after 9-11. It was like that December by that December, like literally the bottom had fallen out of because it was commercial construction and you know, like lots of landscape construction and that sort of thing. And like literally the bottom had fallen out of it. There were no more big construction projects going on, uh, at least not like they had been. So, you know, for somebody who wanted to move up in a company, there, there weren't companies that were hiring. And if you were low man on the totem pole, you weren't going to be around very long. And the work just plain dried up. So, yeah, I had to find other things to do. And, you know, I, I thought, wow, man, I've always wanted to go back in a kitchen and uh, kind of do that. I ended up going to uh, Rotolo's Pizza. That was that was the place that I kind of credit with getting me back on track. Yeah, you were there for like, I think, like about seven years or so. Why pizza? Was it just something that seemed kind of easy to pick up, you know, get kind of your feet back into the industry? Or was it just something that with the dough making process, was that something that you kind of gravitated towards because of stuff with your family and childhood and everything? Uh, it, was, um, it, was, it was a couple of things. One, I wanted to work for a place that was either chef run or that was family run. And I wanted to work for a place that was small. So those were kind of the things that I had in my mind because I felt like that gave me the best opportunity to learn a broad range of things that I wanted to learn. Knowing that wherever I started, I would be starting pretty close to the bottom. You know, having to prove myself, I wanted to be able to have the opportunity to do it and not get lost kind of in, you know, some corporate thing or, or what have you. So the Rotolos had, uh, they had, they were in the middle of expanding um, and they had just happened to open one not too far from the house. And so why pizza? I mean, you know, coming from Cleveland, 
We got a pretty strong love affair with pizza. It turns out not nearly as big as Columbus. We are also very strongly opinionated about it. Uh, you know, Northeast pizza is kind of a thing. If you talk to anybody from like Youngstown or uh, Cleveland or what have you, they're going to tell you what pizza is or isn't. And so I was always, you know, I mean, growing up, that was a thing that was always around. My uh, aunt, her family is Italian, and they would always bring like these big sheet pans of pizza to kind of like every family thing. And they weren't pizza like you find down here. Well, I take that back. If like if you go to the Italian festival, you know, the big sheet pans of kind of that Sicilian pizza type thing. Yeah, square cut. Yeah, that was what we kind of grew up with. I wanted to have that around me. You know, after the bottom kind of fell out of the construction, I, you know, I was kind of foundering and I, and I felt like I needed, you know, I need to put my, both my feet on the ground somewhere and like, just be able to feel myself in a space and, and, and be able to learn it again. You know, it was just basically luck more than anything that they happened to be hiring. And I happened to drive by and go, man, I have been hearing about these guys for a long time. You know, I knew that it was family run and whatnot. And, you know, back then in the, in the sort of been late nineties, early two thousands. Right. So they were kind of it. And it was just a, a, a weird, one of those weird situations where everything kind of fell together. And it was always something that I wanted. To, there is the dough thing, right? That was always in my brain. I need to learn this. I need to, you know, I tried it at home. I'd been doing it for years, and somewhat successfully, but never really getting what I wanted, you know, or, or getting what I grew up with. And that, that, of course, was my dream, was to be able to recreate all the flavors that that I grew up with so that when, you know, I had kids, I could pass that stuff on. Uh, there still wasn't like the hardcore idea of doing it necessarily for a living. But I knew that I had found a place where, you know, I could put my head down and do some hard work and and kind of just basically starting from scratch again, you know, just to start rebuilding a thing, pretending that it was a career until it really was one. So with all the different types of pizza that are out there now, I mean, you have Columbus style, obviously deep dish, New York, Detroit, but there's even like Miami, like Colorado. I mean, I know you're not involved in pizza anymore, but is there a particular type that like you gravitate towards? It's very divisive. I, I get in arguments a lot of times that I'm a New York style guy, even though I didn't grow up in New York. There's a lot of places where people are like, oh, well, this place. And I was like, yeah, but they do this weird thing with it. You know, they have a different like flavored crust and that's not really in all this stuff. Is there a particular type of pizza that you kind of have settled on? Yeah, the, the kind that's in front of me is generally the one that I'm really enjoying. I, I've tasted quite a bit. I, I have friends that have uh, traveled extensively and have made it kind of a thing to search out pizza all over the place. And, and uh, you know, I've got several books on the subject, I suppose. And by the way, pizza is never not far from uh, Baker's mind, I'd like to think. Um, at least the kind of baker I am and the place where, you know, where I'm from, pizza is bread. That's, that's really the beginning and end of the discussion. So if you can't make bread and you can't make pizza, you know what I mean? They, they just, they always go together. So the first step, in a pizza is is bread. And and that's how, by the way, I will judge just about every pizza is, is there any flavor whatsoever in the dough? Um, and if there's not, then you're really already lost. You know, I mean, the rest of it's just window dressing. And uh, do I have a favorite? I don't know that necessarily I have a favorite. You know, my wife and kids took a trip to Chicago just a couple months ago, and they brought me back a... Um, like one of the pizza places up there, Lumanati's. And so this was like cold pizza that had sat in a box while they drove back from Chicago. And I got to be honest with you, it was delicious. It wasn't like the casserole, you know, bread bowl type thing that we make it out to be. It was really well balanced. It was a good pizza. I've also, dude, I love Polly G's here in town. Um, love Red Brick. 
having said all of that, my favorite is mine. Yeah, it's a little different when, yeah, you can make high quality dough. Yeah, I suppose you're right. But I would I would encourage anybody, I would encourage everybody to do it. Do it at home. If you've got significant others that live with you, that's even better. If it's if it's not, invite some friends over and everybody gets to have some fun. There is nothing better than making it at home. Are you going to fail? <laughs> Absolutely. All the time. It just doesn't matter. If you've put a little bit of love into it, man, it's just too much fun. And eventually you're going to be good at it. And then you're going to be really good at it. And, you know, anybody can go online and there are there are any number of pages and, you know, Facebook groups and all sorts of things that are dedicated to these home guys that, frankly, embarrass the rest of us. I mean, some of the pictures I see, I'm just like, oh, my goodness, you know, these guys have got like wood fired ovens in their backyard or they're tricking their ovens in their house to cook at like 800 degrees so they could cook like Neapolitan pizza. It's bizarre. Yeah. People go nuts. So, yeah, I mean, homemade is, you know, that's it always was right. It was a poor people food. So, uh, you know, you sold it out on the streets because you could sell it for cheap. Um, And so, yeah, making it at home is the best by far. Being at Rotolo's, they're not around anymore, are they? They are very much. Yeah. They had expanded to quite a few stores, you know, and it's just it's just a family. You know, I mean, there's 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 three kids and mom, you know, everybody's got their lives. And, and you know, after their dad had passed away, they were they were trying to you know figure out a way to make this a thing. Right. To, to make this a, a generational thing. And, you know, they, they had expanded to quite a few stores. You, you'll see this a lot, too. This is this isn't this is probably the reason why the Mexican place or the Chinese place on the corner constantly has a new name and new faces, but it's still a Chinese place or a Mexican place. My, my point to all that is, you know, it's, it's hard to pass that on from one generation to the next. So what this family, you know, they were first generation. So Dom and his brother or his sisters were, um, were born here. Dominic is kind of the guy that runs the whole shebang at this point. The, you know, they all had their own lives and, and that many stores was, if you can't staff it, with people that care just as much as you do, it's impossible to reproduce that feeling and bring it to areas that aren't already familiar with it, you know? So they had places where they just killed it, right? Up in um, up in Dublin, they had a store. Um, over in Worthington, they had one. And you know, the thing is, is that these were largely peopled by people that had gone to OSU or had family that might live in Grandview or Arlington. And they were able to have known this flavor from growing up. And then they're passing it on to their kids and they're telling their friends. And so it was that sort of thing. And then once we got out to places like Hilliard or Grove City, we, we realized, you know, if, if we don't have, if we can't carry that feeling with us, it's hard to reproduce it. And, you know, there's only so many family members. Uh, and so I think they were just bigger than they and they could quite handle the way that they wanted to, I would say. You know, they all did well, but I think that it was more than, it wasn't the way that they wanted to do things, is what I is what I would say. And so now they, they're back down to one store there in Grandview. Dominic is still in there most of the week, from what I understood the last time I talked to him anyways. He was actually in the shop. You know, Mrs. Rotolo is still there in the mornings, rolling dough and that sort of thing. So yeah, they're still alive and kicking and doing pretty well. I talked to him during the midst of the pandemic and he was being run ragged. Yeah. I mean, with takeout and everything, pizza is kind of that one default thing that, you know, travels well and, and all that stuff. Yeah, it was definitely a winner. Being there for so long. And then, I mean, I think eventually you're, you know, managing the pizzeria. What led to kind of you deciding to open your own place? Because after that was Amalia. Is it Amalia Pasta and Breads? Amalia Pasta. This was kind of a, a offshoot of actually working for Rotolo's in, in my mind. So since a, a kid, you know, growing up, 
uh, or having all of the family on the east side of Cleveland uh, and then moving down here, you know, you just kind of fantasized about all the things that went up, went on up there. It was this perfect place where there were always these, you know, large Italian and Slovenian families with tables that just weighed down with food. And in my mind, as a kid, this is what kind of revolves over and over and over, you know, that little movie in your mind. It's like a scene out of, I don't know, The Big Night or something, right? So I was obsessed with the food from that area from a really, really young age. It has always been Italian food for me. Um, I, I would say Slovenian, but to be honest with you, you know, the world doesn't really know about Slovenian food. They will here, I think probably in the next, I'd say five years, it's starting to get a little bit of a movement. But you know what? It's a small country and it's going to end up being grouped in with kind of Croatia and Serbia and that whole area as people start to discover the cuisines from this area. So anyways, yeah, the, the Italian food was just always the thing. The two things that I'd always been obsessed with in Italian food were bread and pasta. And I would assume in my mind that it's most, it's, it's got a lot to do with the same reason I liked construction, right? It's a craft. It's something that you have to learn. You're not going to do it and be like, holy shit, I'm really good at this, right? You're going to do it and go, oh my God, there's no way people eat this, right? So I was obsessed with becoming good at it. I, I had the family there, you know, and I had I had access to Mrs. Rotolo, you know, some of her relatives. And these are people that, you know, kind of grew up in the old country and they fed me at their table. And then, you know, I go up, up home and get to visit and, you know, there was my grandma Barada and it had so many connections to family and the idea of belonging and that feeling of, I guess home, you know, just that 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 feeling of being in the place where you belong. So making that food really did it for me, you know, and being able to pass that along really did it for me. Working at Rotolo's, I was working on this stuff the whole time anyways. And I would make some, you know, for the family, I, I would dabble around in, in the kitchen and hand it out to people, you know, and I tried to make a Malia, which was named after my grandma tried to name it, or I tried to get that. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make fresh pasta. I want to make fresh pasta like they do it in Italy. Now, now that doesn't sound like the weirdest idea ever. It was the stupidest idea anybody ever had, right? It's not that it wasn't a good idea. It's just that that's not how our country, that's not how we ate. No one was going to go find a little pasta shop and buy the pasta from there. You know, at the time, I think a uh, place in the North Market sold fresh pasta. We had a company there was one in Cleveland and they they sold mostly to restaurants, but it wasn't necessarily good. And uh, at least in my opinion, and it wasn't fresh. It's not the way that I wanted to do it. Right. So I wanted to have that little shop where, you know, someone's making little tortellinis every day and you'd come in and you'd buy some and off you'd go. Fresh pasta doesn't do well. It doesn't last. It doesn't want to last. It doesn't want to go in the fridge. It doesn't really want to be frozen either. The, the Really the best way to do it is to cook it and then freeze it. So, you know, there were some drawbacks to trying to make that an actual business. The fact that I'd have to make it and sell it on that day. And it just never really went out the way that I wanted it to. It was my first way of dabbling into running my own business. And it was kind of an offshoot of what I was doing at the time anyways. And I had, I think I had one wholesale customer and I only, it was a little restaurant called Maka or Maha up in, it was a little tapas place and it's not there anymore. But they used to buy some pasta sheets from me for like uh, cannellonis that they were doing. And even then, I think it was only once that they did that. So anyway, that was, that was the story of Amalia Pasta. It's not really around anymore. I mean, I guess the Facebook page is. And this is probably what, like 2010 or so, somewhere in there? Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds a couple of years before, maybe 2007. But yeah, right in that range. 2010 is when I left Rotolo's. And I left there mostly out of the desire. I, I had to know. 
whether I was any good at the things that I thought I was very good at. Your family tells you that they love the food. That's expected, right? You eat it. You try to be hypercritical or at least realistic, though it, I tend to be hypercritical. Uh, you know, your friends are going to tell you it's pretty good or, or you know, like, yeah, it's not bad, you know? <laughs> so it, it was constantly reading between the lines of stuff uh, because I, I won't ever take what people are saying at face value if I know there's issues and there's always issues. So I needed to answer that question for myself. I needed to know uh, if I was any good. I left Rotolo's and promptly had nothing to do, you know? I, I tried the pasta thing and it, it just wasn't, it's not what I wanted. It's not what, not that it's not what I wanted. There was, I, I couldn't see a way to make it work given <laughs> the financial, you know what I mean? If I, if I knew I could get a space, I knew that I had enough money where I didn't have to worry about selling all the pasta every day. I feel like maybe if I could have lasted until that started to become a thing, right? Restaurants now making their own pasta is not a big deal. Right. Uh, it's still really cool, but you're not surprised when somebody is put a little video on Instagram of them, you know, making a bunch of cavatellis. No, it almost seems like commonplace now. People would be more surprised if the restaurant they went to didn't make the pasta in house, probably. And especially your like kind of your upper class, not upper class, but more more like a, your upper crust or or more artisanal type Italian restaurants. Right. I mean, most of them, some of them are are just pasta restaurants they're they're known for making their pasta whether it's you know vetri's places in philly or what's the guy out in california chef funk funky yeah evan funky uh is it felix i think is the name of his restaurant he's got a couple now i think i think you're right he, he does have a couple and there and there there were a couple even before them you know so you know we kind of take that for granted now but a whole lot less places make bread by the way, <laughs> which, you know, might have been the impetus, you know, as I saw this starting to happen, I, I, I started thinking, you know, what is it that I can do that, that I'm good at? I, I enjoyed making the pasta, but I didn't see how it was going to make money. And that was certainly a consideration. Leaving Rotolo's, I, the, the fresh pasta thing I was trying to, you know, Amalia was not really chugging along at all. It was, it was mostly, you know, kind of choking. And this whole time I'm still dabbling with making bread. I, I've, I've always been making it, but you know, I, I'd still be doing pizza nights at home and that sort of thing. And I realized I was getting pretty good at it. What I wanted was a food truck. I was convinced that that was the way to not only fame and glory, but that was going to be the best way for me to be able to get food to people immediately able to tell if they liked it or not. You know what I mean? This, this was a thing with me. I needed to know you wanted instant kind of raw feedback. Yeah, and it's it's not a it's not a vanity thing. I just needed to know where I fell in the pecking order, in the the echelon of things that people do in life. This is what I have picked to do. How good am I at what I have picked to do? I needed a like a no shit assessment of where I was. And I felt like that was going to get it to me. So I spent some time learning about food trucks and I worked on the cheesy truck way back uh, when my friend Rick Wolf uh, opened it. I, I I liked it and I didn't like it. So I liked interacting with customers. I loved cooking and interacting with customers. That was really fun. Sometimes it was also extremely stressful, as any food truck guy will tell you. The hours, you know, they sucked at the at the time because it was all like late night stuff or these little lunch shifts that were, you know, just a couple of hours. And coming from restaurants, that wasn't the kind of thing, you know, you came in, you prepped. You cooked, you prepped some more, you cooked some more, and then you went home, right? So it was freaking me out, like the way that things ran. Eventually, I got used to it. And then the chance to, to get my own popped up. 
And so I was able to cobble together some money and and picked up this food truck, um, which was, oh my God, that thing was a piece of crap. That seems to be the usual story. I talked to somebody who went from restaurants and the first thing that they did was to, for their own restaurant was a food truck. And it was, yeah, it's supposed to be this great idea. And just the amount of money that they had to keep dumping into it for maintenance issues was just like astronomical. You know what you don't want to be? You don't want to be a carny. You don't want to feel like you should just be doing French fries and freaking waffle cakes or whatever elephant ears. You know what I mean? You don't want to be that guy. You want to do something, right? And I bought this old, <laughs> this old taco truck. It was a short bus. The guys had literally, they had cobbled together some commercial equipment, had a flat top in there. The flat top had no regulator on it. So it was straight propane going right from the, <laughs> the, the propane to the, to the flat top. And I asked them to light it. They looked at me like, like, dude, like everybody should step off this thing real quick. <laughs> One person, swear to God, he was lighting it like at the same time trying to stand 12 feet away. And I'm like, dude, if it goes, we're all going. Like, you're going to take half the block with you at this point. Jesus. So whatever. We didn't die, obviously. Uh, but clearly the truck needed some work. So uh, we went and, and got quite a bit of work done to it. And and then I opened up my little Italian food truck. It was called Pursuit after, uh, you know, prosciutto, kind of the slang on prosciutto. And that was, uh, it was also a little bit of a nod to, to my buddy Dominic, because he definitely has that a strong streak of that uh, Italian slang uh, that I kind of grew up with in Cleveland, you know, and I don't know that anybody ever says prosciutto, right? You just say prosciutto. Nobody says capicola. You just say capicola, right? Uh, you don't necessarily take God's name in vain, but you do say, oh, not on all the time, which is, you know, kind of calling for Mary. Um, so all these sorts of things, it kind of reminded me of home. So that was how I came up with the name. And we had a small menu. I, I say we, but it was really just me. Uh, and my wife, who was pregnant at the time. So that was a fun summer. And I, I made everything from scratch. I literally made everything from scratch, uh, except for the prosciutto, because, you know, that takes a year. And uh, the mozzarella, you know, but I did make sure I was sourcing some good fresh mozzarella when I when I used it. And we did, you know, meatballs and red sauce. Uh, we did like a prosciutto and fresh mozz sandwich uh, with arugula. We do a couple different salads, like really simple, very Italian stuff. You know, I did these like blanched green beans with a, oh, it was like a Dijon vinaigrette. I would do, you know, arugula salad with a strawberry vinaigrette and none of it was flashy. Uh, well, I did this dish called Arista de Mayaye, which is uh, a classic Tuscan pork dish. And uh, it, it's a pork loin. And you basically crust the thing with different kinds of spices. And then you roast it pretty hot and hard. And it was absolutely delicious. I did love that dish. So really simple things like that. And I mean, we only had like maybe three or four sandwiches on the menu at any time um, because I literally made all that shit from scratch all the time. So I would show up before a shift at like three o'clock in the morning uh, and start cooking and then be ready to head out to be there, you know, by 11 or whenever, get done at like two, head back, clean up the truck, get my shopping list together and start the whole thing over again. So that was fun. That was good stuff. Once again, I think you're a little early, like food trucks, I think probably a handful of years after probably when you had yours really kind of took off. And now it's it's fairly commonplace. And there's a lot of people that even recommend like instead of having a brick and mortar restaurant, you should have a food truck, depending on what your concept is. But what was kind of the most challenging part? Was it just the long hours or just kind of the cooking and stopping, cooking and stopping or the maintenance issues or what was kind of the biggest challenge with the food truck? 
I'd say that probably the biggest challenge is uh, getting to that place where your week is filled, you know, knowing that you've got dependable spots that you can go to that are going to make you money. The hours suck, but they suck in every restaurant, right? You know, there's things break down in every restaurant, right? Now, this is a little bit different. You know, your restaurant's on wheels and most restaurants aren't designed to travel. So the stuff did take a beating uh, and the trucks took an extra beating as well. So yeah, that stuff always popped up. But I would say that that consistency, by the way, the, the juggling, which is, you know, it's not unusual to restaurants either. The idea of having anything that resembles a life, some sort of work-life balance, it was all too easy to disappear into this thing and just, you know, not come up for air for months, right? I mean, it was way too easy to do that. Uh, and, and part of the reason that I had left Rotolos and, and wanted to do my own thing was so that I could enjoy, you know, my, at the time, my, my youngest was, uh, you know, still still a young girl. And, and um, I very much wanted to enjoy her growing up. I had a wife that was starting to wonder if it was worth having me around. And I thought I should probably be able to find a couple of reasons why, you know? Uh, so th- there were, there was a bunch of reasons that, that led me to doing the, the food truck or, or going on my own. But that was the hardest part I'd say was, was making sure that you had a week full of business that made money. And then that you were able to balance that somehow and, and still have a life. So from there, what led to kind of shutting down the food truck and then starting your bakery? Well, the, the food truck decided it for me. Like I said, it was old. It was uh, from the, it was 1971, 72. It was almost as old as I am. Um, I was born in 1970. So the thing was, you know, we were pals. It, it has not handled its years any, <laughs> like it just, yeah, it was a hard used, hard used truck. And uh, the suspension was pretty much shot. Uh, the brakes would freeze up when you were going down the road. Now, luckily, that only happened once, but it happened uh, it was over in Grandview. And I was almost, I was like, I had just left this parking lot and I was going down the street and all of a sudden the brakes just locked up. And I thought the truck was going to tip over. Like I, I literally thought all the food's going to come crashing on my head along with the cooler and the flat top. So that was the end of the truck. But it just, uh, there were so many issues with it. And it was at this point, it was going to take so much money. And I had, it had been nickel and diming me that whole summer. So every time I would get ahead, something would happen. I'd have to take the truck off the road and get it fixed. So by the way, food truck guys, make sure that the truck is like, you know, mechanically sound, unless you're going to park it somewhere and forget about it. You know, in any case, that was the end of the food truck business. But, you know, I kind of wanted to get back into it, but I knew that that, you know, when the thing is only worth five grand and you know you got to put seven grand into it, it just starts to become a conversation you don't want to have, you know? I ended up working with some buddies of mine at the time that that uh, owned a, a place called That Food Truck. You know, we, we kind of worked together for a while. The whole time, I had been thinking about the fact that, you know, I had made all the breads for the stuff on the truck and, and people were talking to me about it. And they said, you know, we really want to, we really want to use those breads or where can I get those breads? And so it was really just a pretty quick process after that, where I was like, you know, this was one of the thoughts that I had had, like way back when I left for Tola's was, do I do a food truck or do I start up a bakery? The food truck thing happened for me. um, And then it didn't. So I thought, you know what, you do know how to do this bread at the time. And now, or at this point, and I got to say, like, at this time, I just knew how to cook like focaccia. I made good pizza, focaccia. That was really it. I made, I made some ciabatta. I don't think it was very good. People thought it was good. I think they were nuts. But you know what I mean? Like it was that sort of thing. Gotcha, it was good. People wanted to order plenty of it. So that got me started. I was, well, I still am at the the food fort over on the east side or near east side. 
you know, it was just a bunch of chefs and food truck owners in there. And so I was able to pick up a couple customers right away. And that that was the beginning. That was it. You were pretty much self-taught in most of everything that you've done, you know, maybe picked up some stuff from cookbooks and stuff, but still on your own. So I would ask, you know, I asked this to pretty much everybody, but you didn't go to culinary school. Was there ever a point that you thought maybe culinary school made sense for you? And also, what would you say to anybody, you know, if somebody came and approached you or, or one of, you know, the the people that works with you would be like, hey, you know, I'm really super serious about doing this. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What's your take on it? Yeah, well, good question. So the, the answer is, yeah, I had wished that I had gone, not necessarily cooking school, but I, I should have staged, wish that I had had the time to travel around and visit bakeries. Now, I did do a little bit of that once I got my business started because there were just gaps in my education and I needed to get those ironed out. And there was other stuff that I wanted to do and I needed to understand those processes. And honestly, I wanted to see a bakery in action. I wanted to see the kind of place that I envision. I wanted to see what it looks like when it's running. So those are the kind of things that you can't get outside of either a kitchen job or a cooking school, right? That, that idea of maybe you know how to cook for five people. How do you cook for 50? How do you cook for 500? And how do you make it all taste the same as the stuff that you cooked for five people, right? That's a hard thing to, to, to grasp. And you're only going to learn either by having it taught to you or by doing it with somebody that knows how to do it already. So I did travel around and visited a couple of bakeries, uh, spent a couple of weeks at, at different places. Um, and I, I guess that's the kind of education that I wish I had had more of. The, I think cooking school has its use and I think it's, it's got its place. People that come out of cooking schools, I don't know that they're ready to be chefs. And I'm not casting dispersions on anybody who's currently paying an exorbitantly large amount of money at a, the cooking school of their choice. The discipline that you're going to get to be able to do good at this comes from working in a kitchen. The skills that you need, you will get an eye opener to. You, you'll, you'll learn the basics of some of these classic techniques. But in order to become truly good at them, you've got to do them day in, day out, every single day till it's automatic. And th that's not something that you learn at, at cooking school. It's just you can't. But it is a good way to get yourself opened up to the wider world of what it is that you think you might want to do and to learn, like I said, those basics. But you need to understand that when you come out, wherever you go, you're not starting at the top. You need to have the idea that I need to go in and learn a place from wherever they'll have me, right? And if that means I'm just a grill guy, that's where I have to start. If you get lucky to get in as a sous chef, well, I mean, congratulations. Hopefully you have a work ethic and a desire to go with it. But I've seen a lot of people who thought they were going to come out and, you know, go from cooking school to the food network, I guess, and just never, you know, what ends up happening is one of two things. One, you either find them at your local drive through carry out selling you beer, or they end up doing it on their own, right? They end up, say it's somebody who's got that personality, who's driven, who, who enjoys this work, who enjoys feeding people, has no problem with the hours, the discipline it takes to become good at it, but just thinks that they're way better than they might actually be. They end up doing their own thing and having to start from the beginning anyways, right? There's still that grind of years. So I think any way that you slice it, you're still going to have to spend the time to grind out, to get to the point where you actually want to be. Yeah, th th that's just my thoughts on it, though. I'm willing to be wrong. I want to get the pronunciation right, because I think this is up for maybe some debate. Is it Majita or Matija? No, it's uh, Matia. Matia. Yeah, pretend there's no J in there. And I actually, I had thought about not putting the J in there, 
but it's named after my great grandfather. And my great grandfather is named after my great great grandfather, and so on and so forth, going back quite a bit longer than you would think. So I figured, uh, Matia, it is. It gets the J. But yeah, that's how you pronounce it. Uh, it's it's a pretty normal Slovenian name. It's just it's Matthew. You know, and I guess if you were a bit farther south in Greece, it'd probably be Matthias, right? If you're in Italy or Spain, it's Matteo, but it's Matthew. With Mattia, you know, you're having some success, you know, kind of almost a natural extension of business from food truck and everything. How did you kind of come to terms with being the guy that made rolls instead of being the guy that was, you know, doing all these elegant pastries and stuff when, when all that stuff kind of started coming around? Right. So, yeah, that was a that was a funny interview. First of all, I, I have nothing wrong with with, you know, the guys that make the rolls. I had spent time at these bakeries and I had read all the baking books from the guys at Tartine and, oh my God, uh, what's his name? Banchi, Gabriele Banchi in, in Rome. And, you know, these guys, uh, you know, they do these big, beautiful breads, these big, beautiful pizzas, these, you know, eight foot focaccias. They, you know, I didn't want to be doing four dozen hard rolls, but, you know, I, I went to school and grew up around the Aldino family here in town. And those guys busted their ass and made a living doing just that. And it seems stupid to think that A, bread's not bread. And B, um, you know, at some point you have to tell your ego to get fucked and just do what people want. It's not to say you do things badly or anything along those lines. But if you have a skill and this is what people want, you're an idiot for not picking up the money if it's laid down. You know what I mean? So that was what it came really down to that, you know, I, I don't work in a, I don't have my own bakery. So, you know, I don't have a big, beautiful bread oven that can make the kind of loaves that I had envisioned myself making. I'm, you know, I'm working out of the same convection ovens that every single restaurant hotel in town does. So there's serious considerations on what I can and can't do. And, you know, I have to work around that. This is, I could do this. I could pump out and this people wanted. So it seems silly, especially at the time going through at this point, we, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at the, the lockdown. I mean, I was doing it before then, but not that, not that level. And then, you know, going through the lockdown, it, it was, it was just whatever. You're going to give me money if I make bread. Okay, great. Let's do that. Yeah. It just seemed to be a silly thing to even be worried about at that point. I mean, you're either good at what you do or you're not. And if, if you're good at it, you should be able to be good at it no matter what you're making, right? A chef that makes pizza probably makes a good pizza, whether you want, you know, cheese on it or no cheese on it. You know what I'm saying? Like it just, it doesn't, I, I could no longer reason it out in my head for why, you know, I was being that asinine about, about the idea of making, you know, rolls upon rolls upon rolls. So how big did it grow before coronavirus? Like how many did you have, you know, 15, 25 different places or? Yeah, it was small, but it was it was it was me. You know, I, I had one part time person, you know, we knocked him out. Uh, it was about 15, 20 customers. You know, I usually I'd, I'd say that's, on you know, a monthly basis. Not everybody ordered every single week. I probably had about 12 to 15 that ordered every single week. It was never a lot of money uh, and it was never really going to be that way. And, uh, you know, in some ways, I think I, I was saying in that interview that, uh, you know, the pandemic kind of that lockdown saved me a little bit. It absolutely like just shot a bunch of like just adrenaline into my company. You know, I mean, I had been doing my thing and I was happy with it, but I was constantly thinking, what am I going to do? How, how do I get this to the next level? Right. How do I, it's just me. 
Where do I even find people at this point? Oh, I can find people. How do I pay people at this point? I don't have enough customers. How do I get more customers? Well, I need to have my own space, but I can't afford my own. You know what I mean? Like it was like constant, like that just went over and over and over in my head. And uh, I just could not see the light of day. And I was also getting older, man. You know, I mean, I just, uh, the pandemic was, uh, was, was the big 5-0 for me. So that was nice. You know, my body is not doing what I expected to do anymore either. Those three and four o'clock mornings were getting harder and harder to, uh, to do. You're still pushing out your 10, 12 hours if it's needed, but you're no longer excited about it. You know, you're like, shit, I might as well get this over with. That was how things were before the coronavirus. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm probably, I liked it. I liked what I did. I had made really good contacts. I enjoyed the kids that worked for me and I liked what I was doing, but it was not going to, you know, looking now, uh, I, I feel like that was a really, really naive person that was, that was running that company, even at, you know, that late age, someone who really had a lot to learn still. So it was interesting. So with coronavirus kind of putting everything on pause, all the restaurants go on pause for at least 90 days, pretty much some kind of pivoted to take out pretty quickly. But I think a lot of people are just kind of wait and see, you know, a lot of the customers, clients that you have kind of just go offline, you know, with the pandemic, you said it was almost a good thing. Can you elaborate it? Like, how did that help you? Did it just give you time to kind of really answer all those questions that you just kind of ran through and just kind of restructure? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. So first of all, it wasn't a good thing, right? It, it, it's it's horrifying, right? And uh, it, it's certainly the thing that uh, it's going to stick with our national psyche for quite a while, right? It's a history book type of an event we've, we've all just been through. And there was nothing pretty about it. Having said that, um, the lock, you know, killed the business. It was gone. It was done. There was nothing to do. I had a couple customers that uh, were pivoting to the carryout uh, and they were enough to, you know, keep me going a couple days a week. But it was, it was no longer really a business, not in the way that, that I wanted it to be in any shape or form. So what it gave me the option of doing was uh, A, being scared crapless, right? Like, how am I going to... I thought it was bad before that I couldn't see a way forward. So holy shit, now it's really something. There's that. And it also gave me a, a bit of time to reflect on what it is I wanted to do. Yeah. So how I wanted to be able to move forward. And, you know, I, I found um, there was a, a certain amount of resiliency in my company because I was so small. So I was able to make these pivots and, you know, not having a lot of overhead. I wasn't one of the the, the guys that wasn't able to make it, you know, and then there's, there's plenty of, uh, you know, our friends that weren't able to, to weather it. And then that's, that sucks. But I, I think that the size I was helped a lot. So being a small little company meant I could say, okay, listen, all my customers are gone. Here's where there are customers. Let's go get some. Right. So, you know, I was able to fall back on doing food trucks who, you know, I had kind of started with those guys. Right. So, let the food truck guys know I'm still around. They all need bread. Street time really helped me out by, you know, he was never, he was not really even a customer of mine, just a guy that I know. And uh, he really helped me out uh, for uh, about a month or so. He, he was ordering boatloads of bread from me and that helped a lot. And, and it, it, it got me realizing that that's really the only way to go is to start seeing who there is out there and, and trying to capture a bigger share of, of this business as it starts to come online. And that sounds kind of confusing. And it wasn't all that 
No, it. I think it basically forced you to stop and look at kind of the marketplace and like, okay, I actually need to, not to say that you weren't doing sales beforehand, but like really focused on getting new clients where maybe before you didn't have the time because you were always in the bakery for 12 hours a day. Yeah. And you know, I also had the luxury of being a little bit connected. Word got around and then, you know, they would, people would reach out to me and say, Hey, we, we'd like to have some bread. I'm like, awesome. I'll bring you some next week. You know what I mean? And that was my sales team. So all of a sudden I actually had to think about that as well. And by the way, this, you know, in hindsight, I can, I can reason these steps and I can make them sound a lot more precise when they, than they were. There was a whole lot of, yeah, there was a whole lot of like dancing on coals type of movement going on in my brain, right? Like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Where do I go? Where do I go? And, you know, if you were to ask me in other circumstances, you know, with maybe a glass of something in front of you, I'd be like, dude, I have no idea. I just completely fucking lucked out, you know? So uh, th- there's both sides to that. The two things that really did it for me was, A, uh, nobody was working. So I was able to have conversations with some people um, that no longer had jobs that I wanted to work for me. So there was the opportunity of getting people. And there was also the opportunity of getting business. I just happened to have a conversation with Jamie Anderson from Ray Ray's. I had done some bread for him. He was doing kind of like a uh, a pig roast up, up at his farm, and he wanted me to do some bread. And uh, he was basically, he was giving the food away, right? He's asking for donations. This was to help people during the pandemic, right? You need, you need a meal? Yeah, you need a meal? Come in and get some roasted pig, which by the way, was unbelievably good. You know, we had flirted with the idea of, of doing stuff before. And I, I did the bread for like their weekly specials for a while now, but just didn't have the infrastructure to take on a company that size. Well, I had no other business. So all of a sudden I had, the ability to take on a company of that size, right? Even if it's my only stinking customer at the time. So uh, those two things really are what were able to like keep the company going. And they're the reason that I can sit here and say, well, you know, I had to think about this and I thought about that. Uh, that's all true. But also I got really lucky. You know, I, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time where I, I could say, hey, I need people. I have the available availability now of grabbing these people and I need a customer. Well, now I can pick up a big customer that I've always wanted to work with anyways. So that was nice. Now, since the pandemic, I mean, when being approached with like a, a potential new customer or new account, do you look at it differently? Do you look specifically for certain things because you are still, you know, one person or a couple people knowing kind of what happened beforehand? Do you kind of analyze it differently? Like, well, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. Or is it just still in the phase of like, yeah, let's get enough kind of customers back and then I can figure out to grow to the next step and bring on more people and we can kind of scale it that way. Honestly, I don't. There was a a short period there where I was like, screw it. If you want bread. Uh, I got to strike while the iron's hot. Let me pick up everybody that I can. But the reality of the situation is I don't have my own bakery. So at no point am I going to be telling my staff, listen, we've got to work. We're going to be here 12 hours out of every 13, right? Like there's just no two ways about it. We've got to do this now. That was never going to happen. I, you know, I share a space with however many different companies. So there was that consideration, which is not a small one. It, it's the overarching consideration generally when when I come to these situations. And then I've always been, I've always been, I don't want to say picky, but I have been choosy. You know, there's not that there's people I don't want to work with because that's not true. I, you know, if you want bread, I want to make you bread. But I am, I love to hear a small restaurant or a local restaurant. Hey, we, uh, 
we, we know about you and we'd like to see if, if we could use you in our restaurant. Man, that will get me every time. Man, nothing against, you know, the big boys in town, whether it's, you know, Bravo or Cameron Mitchell or, you know, whoever, right? I mean, any of the, the big groups, those guys are great. But I doubt that that's ever really going to be me. On the other hand, uh, if Skillet calls, I'm going to take that phone call. You know what I mean? I like the idea of working with uh, the small, either chef-driven or you know, family-run restaurants. And that's not really changed. That, that was the same process I had before. Do you think people underestimate bread? How important it is to you know a burger or a chicken sandwich? Like I think people just think, oh yeah, it's bread. You know, you make some dough, you put it in the oven, you bake it, you're good to go. But there's a lot more that goes into it. You know, how much water's in the bread, what the air temperature is, you know, flour, like all that stuff. Do you think? that maybe because of, you know, that people are starting to appreciate it more because of everything that's gone on with, you know, the pandemic and people, there was a big thing where people were baking bread at home. Like that was like a hobby that took off. So do you think people maybe have more of appreciation now coming out of the pandemic than they did before? Or do you still think like it'll still take some time before people truly appreciate how important bread is to different kind of food items? Okay. Well, uh, I mean, get comfortable because I got all kinds and I'll, I'll make it as snappy as I can, but yeah, you know, some of this is where we live. Some of it is who we are as a culture. And what I mean by that is, you know, I spent a, I spent a considerable amount of time in New England, uh, Vermont and New Hampshire. It's a bunch of little small towns without any really big towns or cities anywhere near. Um, you know, there's a couple, right, as you get to a coast or by a lake. And so there's a ton of bakery and little shops like that. And they're all supported by these local economies. Uh, and it's really pretty freaking awesome. If you're out in California, artisan bread has been a thing out there, right? For a long, long time. And I, I would say it's probably even, you know, more frenzy about it now than there was before. If you grew up in Columbus, Ohio, bread was Wonder Bread, you know? If you were lucky, you know, maybe you knew about Aldino's or whatever the other local bakeries would have been down here at the time. Not really familiar with them. Aldina's was the only one I really knew. You know, that was like the special occasion bread. That was like the the stuff that you that you knew you had like, okay, we're having spaghetti and meatballs. So we got to make sure we go to Aldino's and get a couple dozen seeded rolls, right? So, but by and large, bread was kind of just the, it wasn't being, it wasn't really given much thought. It, it was always a big thing with me. Like I said, way back at the beginning, you know, I got this this memory of this big, huge loaf of bread they used to sit on my grandma's table and it just sat out and, you know, it was covered with a tea towel and she'd take the towel off, take a couple slices. It was good all week, man. And the thing was always out. You didn't see bread like that anywhere else. And I don't think anybody really thought much of it. Uh, we all kind of got used to basically disposable bread, this throwaway material. I don't think that it, uh, it is, but I think that it was, that that's what it became. I think that it was driven that way, you know, by market forces, I suppose, right? Get a loaf from the store. It lasts a week. Next week, you got to get a new one. You can make it faster. And if you can make it sweeter, everybody's going to want it, right? So all of a sudden, you had the, you know, all these miracle ingredients for a product that wasn't going to be very good for you. Boy, you could probably make some money if you were, if you were in it. So, it, you know, yeah, it, it became very disposable. It became very much a thing that, you know, not very many people did think of. I think that that has changed a lot. I think that it was changing before the pandemic. I think that it changed quite a bit during the lockdown as people did start to do all this stuff at the, themselves at their own homes and then wanted to know how to do this. So, you know, they 
they reached out to people like myself or Dan or Dan the Baker or whoever, you know, any number of resources that are online to learn how to do this at home. And then once you know that, once you have that taste, that becomes important again. You know, that becomes something that you'll search out. So if you know that a restaurant is serving a particular kind of bread, or you know that a store carries the bakery, or you have a baker that's in your neighborhood, I think it's more important now than it was before. And hopefully that trend will just continue. Hopefully it will keep going that way. Because like I said, once that becomes the taste, that's, that's it. That's always the taste. That's what you associate with bread. It's not, you know, the more that you eat it, the less that it's going to be Wonder Bread or Schweibels or whoever. It's going to be something different. And it's, by the way, we, this goes all the way back to the pizza thing too. Whatever you grew up with that you ate as pizza, that's pizza, right? It doesn't matter if you grew up in Columbus, Philly, wherever, whatever that place was, wherever it was that you went and celebrated like little league victories or went to after the dance or where you went with your family uh, on Friday nights or had delivered to your house, whatever that pizza was, whether it was Papa John's or, you know, Pasquale's was, that's pizza. That's going to be it, right? And it's the same way with bread. Whatever you, whatever it is that you start to make those taste memories with is what you'll search out. And um, with the exception of Wonder Bread, because nobody wants to go back to <laughs> that pink dough hamburger, right? You know, the whole Eddie Murphy skit. I remember eating that as a kid, man. That's freaking disgusting. But anyways, yeah. So except for that food memory. Um, yeah, hopefully that's the way that it's headed and it stays that way. I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I couldn't really find the answer. Why wholesaling only? Why never do any even like a small retail side or, or anything like that? Was it just space? You didn't have the room for it? It was. It was it was space. I was, you know, being at the commissary kitchen there at the food fort was by the way, I hope I doesn't sound like I'm just shilling for him. I didn't mean to sound that way at all. I didn't, I want to differentiate it from any other commissary kitchens that might be operating. Uh, certainly didn't allow me to have a storefront. And it was the easiest way for me to start business. I knew chefs. I knew a handful uh, of food truck owners. I knew a handful of chefs. If I could get half of them, then all of a sudden I'd have an actual business. There's also no two ways about it that you know, most of the people in our business, they like a good catering order. The reason being is that if somebody says it's for 200 people, you buy enough food for 200 people, you know, you're going to have X amount left over. You're going to be able to measure that amount and know that it's not going to dip into your, your profits, right? Uh, as opposed to getting ramped up for a Friday night, hoping that we blow the doors off the place. So wholesale bread is much the same way. I was able to say, okay, I have this many customers. I need this much flour. I need this much, you know, yeast, sugar, whatever. And so it was very much a way for me to be able to start a business uh, and not have costs be lost. Uh, and and th that was kind of like the, that was the biggest factor as well as the space. Uh, and then the third thing was desire. Uh, I like the chefs here in town, even the ones that are assholes. I like those guys too, man. There's people that work that way that have done that to their body <laughs> over the years. I just like, I, I like what comes out the other end. You know what I mean? I like the fact that there's a, a person there who's driven, uh, wants what they want. And by the way, they know, they know exactly what it is that they want. And if I'm not delivering it, holy shit, do I know immediately, right? So, you know, hearkening back to wanting instant feedback. Yeah, I get that right away. So these are good things, by the way. I wanted to work with these guys. You know, I wanted to do this. I wanted to have my bread in these restaurants. I couldn't open a restaurant and I wanted to know that I was feeding people. And yeah, I could have done that retail, 
but I have such a bigger, I have so much more of a reach this way, you know, and I love that. Somebody asked what I like about this. I don't know. It was years ago. And uh, you know what? I like feeding people and I really just want to feed people. It's just, it's been a thing since I was a kid. And when I find somebody that's like that, you know, I'm going to do name dropping now. Right. But whether it's Jamie Anderson from Ray Razor or Chef Matt Higgins or Chestefan at Wario's, these are guys that are driven and they know what they want and they can be hard asses. But these are guys that like taking care of people. And there's, you can't get around that. You can't, there's no way to get around that. They can be as hard as they want, but at the end of the day, they want to sit down and feed you. And and I like that. That's that's how I'm built. And that's why I do this. So I get to feed more people this way. That's, that's kind of the way I looked at it. Every baker has kind of their staple, you know, their go-tos. How do you decide when it's time to maybe try something new that maybe you don't have a whole lot of confidence in just from not having to do it so much because it's not something that people have, you know, requested or ordered or coming up with something new. And you're like, you know, I I think that would work for this. You know, let me try and pitch that. Like, do you get, when you get a new client, are they like, Hey, can you do, you know, Kaiser rolls? Or are you like, well, what are you trying to build? You know, what do you need the bread for? And then figure out kind of the best course of what, you know, type of bread would go best with what they're trying to do. Like, how do you kind of figure all that out? Yeah. So there's a lot, it goes both ways, right? I've got kind of a, a small menu of things that I make that I've always made. You know, they tend to be kind of Italianish, and it's not very extensive. But I know that I can work those different ways, right? And know that I can make different shapes and I can get different textures out of them. So the second part to that is then, you know, working with a would-be customer and seeing what they want, if I have it or something close to that, seeing if they like it. Or, you know, if it's not, can I do I have the space and time to bring something new on? I'm not always willing to because I don't always have the space or, or the time. You know, we, we push out so much bread now at this point that, you know, my lines are kind of based around two or three base recipes, the, the different lines of breads that we do. And if it's not off of one of those, man, it is really hard to bring something new into the mix. And like I said, a lot of that is just because I don't have the space to do it. Um or the time. Within those, though, I feel like there's a lot of stuff we can handle, you know? Um, And as far as favorites, I think you were asking that too, right? Yeah. I mean, basically, there's got to be stuff that you have kind of go-tos where somebody's like, yeah, you know, I I need bread for my restaurant and I'm thinking about doing a shaved beef sandwich. What works best with that in your opinion, you know? People seem to gravitate a lot towards the focaccia. The focaccia is definitely my favorite thing. And it's the thing that I've made the longest. So I feel like I kind of got it nailed at this point. And it goes it goes in waves, man. It's weird. Like all of a sudden, every customer I want wants so much focaccia that I'm making, you know, 10, 12 sheets of it, you know, a day. And I'm like, oh, I fucking hate focaccia, right? And then everybody, somebody puts a thing on Instagram with the brioche roll. And then every single person calls and wants brioche. And man, I'll tell you what, I freaking hate brioche. I hate it worse than I hate most things in this world. I hate it. I hate it, hate it, hate it. I think it's the worst freaking bread. And maybe it's because I don't make very good brioche. People seem to think it's okay. I do not. I think it's tricky. I think it's way, way too expensive. And I think, you know, the list of things that it's good with really kind of begins and ends with a hamburger. Like I just don't, there's so many other yummy breads that are out there. It's like, well, why do you want the, literally the worst? I mean, it's, it's one step beyond a cake, right? It's barely bread. Like, why do you want that for your sandwich? And I get it. I get it. 
it's you know it's all poofy it's golden it's buttery it's it's sweet but oh my god does it i hate it with a passion i I hope i'm getting that across okay i feel like i'm holding back a little bit but i have so many customers that want it now at this point i just i'm resigned you know what i mean like i just i gotta make my peace with it man because there's a lot of guys that i like uh, or a lot of people that i like that that order it so i do try my hardest to make it just as good as i can have your kids shown any interest in getting into cooking or baking? I, I know I asked this to like uh, Brett Fife over at Ghostwriter because he's kind of in the, the same boat. But is it something that if one of your kids was like, you know, I, I see what you do. It looks really fun. I'm super interested in that. I want to pursue that. Would you be like, all right, we need to sit down and have a conversation just about how stressful this is going to be? Or like, have they shown any interest? And in, and if they did, what would, you, I guess, what would your opinion, you know, kind of be? Would you be like, all right, like th- just give them the kind of the real this is a, yeah, this is a great question. Cause I, I've, I've got two girls. I am uh, like, I'm a big softy for those two. Like it's, it's literally, it's the best thing ever. Like being a dad to the both of them is, is uh, well, it's the shit, but anyways, you kind of go through and, and any, anybody who's any dad with daughters knows that you kind of go through this period where they are, they're literally kind of like your hero and they want to do what you do. And dude, it makes you feel a hundred feet tall. I got to tell you, here's the thing. It only lasts about a year and a half. And then they realize you smell weird. You've got hair everywhere and you're really kind of gross. Right. But that year and a half are freaking awesome. So during that time, the youngest now she's eight. And so, yeah, she says that she wants to you know, do this and do that. Uh, she shows some interest in it and it's just for fun at this point. So I, you know, I encourage her and, and we, we have fun with it. The oldest uh, is getting ready. She'll be starting college this fall. We've already had that conversation. She actually works in a restaurant. She has worked for uh, a bunch of my friends over the years. She works for me every Sunday. The fact that she works for me, I think, has convinced her that it is definitely not the way she wants to, <laughs> where she wants to be. The thing is, she does have some aptitude for it. She does have the hands for it. You know, there, and that's not to say, by the way, I'm going to go off on a side thing here. Anybody can learn to do this, right? But there are people just have the hands, whether it is the way that you look and see everything on the table or in a kitchen or whether it's the way that you handle your ingredients or whatever it is, there's some people that have a knack and and some people that don't. Having said that, anybody can learn this, but she does like right off the bat kind of have those hands, right? And I think it's cool, but yeah, it's definitely not for her. If she wanted to, I think it would be cool. I'm I'm not one of those people that, that thinks this is just not a good decision. I would say, what is it about it that you want to do? Do you want to have your own business? Is that the part that's interesting to you? Or do you want to do this? Because if you want to do this, you can start now and you're going to be eons ahead of where you thought you might be by the time you're later on in life. If you want to own a business and figure out what that business is, you know what I mean? Um, and that is hard. That's a whole, that's a hard thing to do. So I would encourage them. I would also encourage them to, and, and my oldest did. I mean, she worked with, she works in the industry. So I, I think she's done it enough to know, yeah, I'm not going to spend my life greasy and covered in flour and sweaty. Right. So I think she's, she's got other thoughts on how to do things. So, and that's perfectly fine too. Columbus's food scene, it, it's changed somewhat. You know, do you think it's changed enough? How has it changed since you started and, and been in the industry? You know, kind of where do you see it going over the rest of this decade from, you know, where it's been, which was predominantly chain focused to now there's more chef driven restaurants and everything. You know, what's your take on kind of Columbus as a food city right now? Tell you what, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty colorful. It's a lot more varied than I think people, and I think that's a good thing. I think there's still a lot for people to 
learn about their own city. Everybody loves Chinese food, but have you gone to some of the Chinese places here in town that are authentic? Because there's some really good ones. Everybody loves Mexican food, but have you made the trip down to like, you know, East Broad or Sullivan or wherever to go eat the food that all the immigrants are going to eat? I think it's awesome that places like Hoyos are in the North Market now because I've, I've always been a big fan of like West African cuisine. And just I had a kid that worked for me that was from Ghana and his mom fed me. It was freaking beautiful. But in any case, uh, there's just so much yet to discover. And I think that's a super, super cool thing. That, by the way, has probably always been true. And, you know, we're just a little white bread. We just we just that's just the way we are. We just, you know, we didn't really think about searching it out. And we are now we, we are whether we're getting, you know, whether you want to call it cosmopolitan, whether you want to call it pretentious or bougie or whatever you might want to say, uh, we are searching out these places. Now, it's not so much the old fogies like me nearly as much as it is, you know, you guys in the younger generation, which is even better because, you know, hopefully these places will be around and be able to make a living for a good long time. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is the continual, ev- continuing evolution of, you know, the idea of food in our city and then what that means. A concentration on local and the idea of, uh, you know, having this economy that's all around us and, and, and propped up by everybody else, right? And then being able to do really good things with that, having the people that have the education and the desire to do really good things with what we have here to offer. I mean, anybody can probably make lobster taste good, but I really think people should probably eat more rabbit, but that's just me. I think venison is really good too. We really need to have some of that stuff. I don't understand why we don't have more of that stuff on the menu. I mean, I do, I do. It's not, it's just not us anymore. But, you know, for the first few hundred years, we ate completely differently than we do now. You know, it was mostly immigrant groups and they ate what they ate and made what they made. And we wouldn't recognize a lot of it, right? Until you get to about the, probably the fifties. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, Wonder Bread is there and Chef Boyardee and everything makes sense again. Uh, I, I do like where the city is headed and I do like watching it. I like being a part of it. I think that it's got a really, really bright future. I want to make sure that there's people in place to keep that rolling. You know, like I'm getting up there and now in age and I'm more than happy to pass that knowledge on. I want that because that's how you actually will change things is as, you know, the people that come up underneath of you they're going to move on and do their own thing. And they're going to take what you've taught them and marry that to their own thoughts and move this thing in this direction and that thing in that direction. And that's when you become something that really special. We're not going to have it imported. Chef Vetri's not opening his next restaurant here. What's, <laughs> I, almost, I almost did a whole throwing somebody under the bus, but the, the, the hamburger guy, I can't remember his name now, but uh, the cat from New York with the burgers and shakes. He's not going to revolutionize Columbus cuisine, right? It's it's going to be the guys that are already here that will move it forward. Nobody's going to be able to come in and do it. I like where it's at. And I like the fact that we have, at this point, we have kind of a youngish amount of chefs that are coming up and uh, enough older chefs to be able to pass stuff on, you know? And to be honest with you, even the older ones are still really kicking it, you know? I mean, whether it's Chef Bill Glover with Ray Ray's or whether it's, you know, Chef Matt Higgins over at Preston's. Uh, and I'm sure I'm leaving lots of people out, but you wouldn't call these the up and comers anymore, right? These are these are established names. These are guys that have been here, you know, a decade. They're teaching the the next generation, and that generation is going to do the next new thing. Um, and that's the cool thing that that I can't wait to see. You've mentioned it a couple times space and age. So what's next for you professionally? Has 
the pandemic, despite all the negative things, it, it sounds like you were one of the few people that were able to make probably some positives out of it. Did that reinvigorate you to kind of push to grow again? Or are you just content with like a bigger space, your own production space? Or are you just content with the way things are and just? Yeah, I'm never content with the way things are. And to be honest with you, it's got to be a downfall of some sort of my personality at, at some point. In this case, it's probably good. Yeah, I definitely need my own space. I've needed my own space for a number of years. Uh, so it, it's really the next thing that's got to happen and, and much sooner than later, I hope. You know, I, I'm also one of those guys, you know, I started this on a shoestring. It's really kind of always been shoestring. It's never been to the point where it was like just rolling in cash. So it's always been very hard for, for me to be able to put together what I needed to be able to build out a space. So, you know, there's no lack of space out there. It's just a matter of being able to put the finances together to get it done. If you know anybody looking to invest, I'm willing to have a conversation. But yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of the thing. It's like, you know, the banks aren't quite as um, forthcoming as they, as they maybe they were with money before the pandemic. Not to mention, I had a, you know, I had a business, I had a food truck and it failed disastrously. So it took a number of years to clean that mess up. You know, I've kind of always hoped that I would be able to fall in with, you know, some people that might be like-minded and, and we'd be able to grow something together. And I don't know, as I get older, you know, that looks less and less likely like it's going to be the case. I'm going to have to, you know, do this on my own. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out where do I beg, borrow and steal it from, I suppose. So that's that. Yeah, I need a space. I want a space desperately. It would also change the the company, right? It would really allow me to do quite a bit more. Um, as far as age goes, I have brought it up. I bring it up a lot more than I used to, really only in this last year. Before then, I would have, I would definitely have tried to be a little bit more of a hard ass about it. But I've got to be honest with you, I, I sometimes wake up more sore than I went to bed. You know what I mean? So like when you get older, like it's no joke. Like all of a sudden I realized, you know, I can talk about being a hard ass, but we both know, me and my body, what the actual truth is, right? And, you know, the fact is that, you know, you start to break down. You're, you're just not as strong as you used to be. Your brain is fine and the desire to still push is there. But, you know, when it's 90 some degrees out and you work in a warehouse, basically, it gets really scary really quick. However, having said that, I also have a lot of fun saying that I feel like baking is kind of like the master's PGA for like kitchen guys. Like it's always there, right? So even when you are done, your back is done. You don't want to sit in front of a stove ever again. You know, that pace is there. That pace is not the same as a kitchen line, right? You have the availability of doing these things for a number of years. And frankly, I feel like I'll probably be doing it till I just pass out one day in front of a loaf of bread somewhere. So we got a few more questions for you. Ask these to everybody so I can get a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say so far, looking back on your career, is the biggest influence on it? Wow. Um, my friend, Dominic Rotolo, for sure, for giving me and, and, and the family for, for reminding me of, you know, what that feels like. And then teaching me like the nuts and bolts, really the part that makes this business actually work, right. Which is making money in it at the end of the day, right. Yeah. You, you have to be able to do that or you're not going to be in it for very long. So, you know, learning how the business actually works, um, because lots of people can cook, but, uh, if you don't know how to run the business side of things. It's just, you're going to be pretty miserable and it's going to be a pretty short run. Definitely him. And, and to be honest with you, probably just like 
all, all the like little old lady cooks in the world. You know what I mean? Like I just get so much from those, from those people. Cause they remind me of how I grew up, you know, my grandma, my grandma, Molly and, and um, my aunt Joey and people like that, that just kind of, kind of remind me of, uh, you know, what's important, right? It's all about family and, and food and, and taking care of the people around you. Those are personal, right? I mean, that's, if you were, if, if, if there's professional ones, I don't know. I mean, I like all those cats. I don't have anyone that like stands out above the rest of them. But if you do, you know, good food and you're passionate about it, I probably, you're probably, I'm probably one of your fans. I'm a huge fan of uh, Chef Colicchio and this baker. Uh, I think I mentioned him in Rome, Gabriele Banchi, um, mostly because he's just an absolute wild man. Also, he's just a really astoundingly good baker. Normally I ask, you know, if it's a chef, what's the one kitchen item that's not a knife that they can't live without, but you can probably get away without using a knife. So I guess what's the one item, you know, in your bakery that you can't live without that's not a mixer? I feel like a, a mixer is a pretty, you know, staple of a bakery. So, so we'll take that one out. There's two questions there. One, do you have to have and what one can you do without? At least I always think of that. Right. And the, the thing, the only thing that I need is my hands. And that's all you need to make good bread. Right. That's it. You need your hands. However, what thing can I not do without? That's a scale. Man, that is everything. I mean, our lives are dictated by that scale. It's it, that scale dictates every single bit of everything that we do from the very beginning to the end. Right. You're scaling out the ingredients for any size batch to how big of a roll you're making at the end. I, I, yeah, I'd have to say a scale, which is not sexy at all. Like, I get it. Like, it's not. But it is the truth. That scale is frighteningly important. What's uh, one thing in your space that if it broke, you wouldn't fix yourself? Like, you're immediately like, nope, not messing with it, not trying to figure it out. I'm calling somebody to come fix that. That's a good question. And I, I don't, I mean, I'll tinker with anything, but I won't tinker with electricity. So when it comes to all of that stuff, as soon as it comes to me having to touch electric, I'm like, nah, let's get somebody in here. Like, for instance, we, you know, when we got this, we got a new mixer and it was this Italian thingy, you know, it's European wiring. And so we had to get a plug installed and, you know, everybody's telling me like, dude, just go and get a, you know, put it on, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, uh, uh-uh. like I'm not, I got to touch this thing every day, every day. Like I'm not farting around with that. There's no way. What's uh, the one restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own? Not that, you know, your stuff is available on the retail side. Yeah, this is, I'll tell you, this is kind of dangerous, actually, because I don't have, I can't say mine, right? I got to think of all the customers, like, who's going to, who's going to be the guy out there is like, dude, I can't believe you didn't say me, right? So I, I guess the, the ones that seem to be making all the waves right now, uh, certainly Cleaver, those guys are just killing it. I mean, killing it. One, I, I love Chef Jay. I worked with him when he was at Rock Mill and uh, he was under Chef Andrew Smith, who, uh, man, you want to talk about a personal hero. I like that guy too. I just like the kind of person that he is. And, you know, they've also got some amazing people working for them as well. I also, uh, the, 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 the one that I probably miss is Rye River, who the chef, the original chef is, is now at Cleaver too. So, uh, I kind of get the best of both worlds because that guy could cook his ass off. So I'm a big fan of those guys. Having said that, I don't get the chance to go out to eat that often. And I haven't been there yet. But I have a lot of friends who have and they all send me their pictures They're like, dude, it was so good. Kudos to those fellas for doing that. Who else? I would say Chef Stefan at Wario's. Wario's sandwich. That's uh, Wario's beef and pork. Dude, I crave those things. I crave those things. Have you had those, the sandwiches that he does? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, I think, like four or five different kind of versions. Every once in a while, they do like a special. I think they just had like a meatball one that was like a special they were doing that day or whatever. But, but yeah, no, they're awesome. You know, they're huge. They're very, very delicious. Oh, good. I'm glad I'm glad you like them. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's not even just because I make the bread, though. I do love the bread that I make for him. Those sandwiches are just, ah, those are good. So, yeah. So there's that. My family, especially my oldest daughter and I, we have like this, this group of restaurants that we kind of jump around on that, that we kind of get cravings for. You know, one of them's Hoyos on the North Market. And then right across from there is Preston's. And we love both those places. Chicha, Chinese food up on, uh, on Henderson is, uh, God, that place is really good too. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Is there any place that you haven't been to that you really want to get to? Yeah. So, I mean, just cause Turks and Caicos, that would be really cool. <laughs> I heard the water's really blue, but honestly, uh, yeah, get over to Italy and, and Slovenia and, uh, be able to soak in, you know, a little bit of the old country. That would be really, really freaking cool. I would also like to just be able to have more time to hit like bakeries and restaurants around the States, even if it was just regionally, you know, it doesn't have to be in California. So many good places that are close. We just never get to all of them. Right. So restaurant destinations. I don't, I don't know. That is such a good question that I don't, you know what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to do like a barbecue trail, right. Hit every place in the Carolinas and Tennessee, right. Every place that's got some kind of real name. That would be really cool. I would love to, you know, eat a really nice uh, uh, meal at uh, at Chef Massimo's place in Bologna. That would be that would be all right too. But yeah, I guess that one's probably the bucket list restaurant and destination. Then, what's the craziest thing that you've seen happen in a restaurant while you were working? While I was working, that, that's a that's a good qualifier there because I I think we've all got some stories that we probably wouldn't be able to repeat. But craziest thing that I ever saw while I was working. There's, I gotta be honest with you, literally nothing comes to mind. I'm for the first time during our thing, I'm actually speechless. I got none. Nothing exploded, no fires, nothing. Uh... Yeah, you know, I mean, all that shit always happens, you know? I've seen people, you know, get cut real bad. And I, I've seen a couple really doozy stove fires. Like, none of it really is like, well, let me tell you about this one time. You know what I mean? Like, maybe the best answer would probably be the fact that the brakes locked up on your food truck. That might be, that's a pretty unique thing. It's unique and it was scary as all get out, you know? I mean, that sucked. And, you know, yeah, I guess that's got to qualify. All I can think of, you know, when that happened, I was like, what, what if I had been going down 315? Screw that. What if I had just been going down Grandview Boulevard and it, right? It locked up at 30 miles an hour. I'd have gone, you know, right up on over end over end. Yeah, that that sucked. We'll, we'll take that as the answer then. And, and by the way, you really need to have... Um, I, I don't know how you do it, but uh, every single kitchen guy has got, and, and girl for sure, has got stories that aren't necessarily suitable, but they're not, they don't always have firsthand accounts of them. Maybe you have a grown-up version someday where you want to hear those stories. I don't know. Oh, they get, it's whatever everybody's comfortable sharing. I mean, explicit content is not something that we shy away from. Yeah, I once heard a horrible story about a stoned line cook and a honeysuckle ham, and I don't really want to finish it. I think we could put two to two together probably on that one. Right. The only thing I can tell you is that it was 100% true, and but that I wasn't there. So fun stuff. Food or drink, guilty pleasure. Is there anything that like you talked earlier about, you know, kind of you guys getting these cravings and everything. Is there anything that you know, like you're like, I got to stay away from that. Like that's super unhealthy. That's super bad for me. But you just, you know, you just can't. Yeah. I've Man, I got a lot. 
I do. So I have to, I'm like, first of all, I could very easily make a bread and pasta, period, right? You're like, dude, you cannot eat that every day, right? There's, there's that idea, but I am a sucker for things like, especially during the winter, things like country fried steak with like cream gravy and mashed potatoes, you know, those big, huge, hearty meals. Yeah, uh, those things just, oh my God, you know, homemade sausage and, or not homemade sausage, but like kielbasa sausage and like kraut and stuff like that pierogies. I mean, I could probably eat my weight in pierogies, which is a lot of freaking pierogies. Those are the kind of things that like those, I guess they call it stick to the ribs, right? Type foods. I have to like, really, they're so rich. They're so bad for you. They, they do, they do offer you some comfort when it's, you know, 12 below or whatever. And they definitely have their place, but you know, probably once in a long while is more than you need to indulge. Pork belly is another one, man. I'm a sucker for like a perfectly cooked like crispy on the outside, all melty on the inside pork belly. It's so rich that you feel like you're going to puke after like three or four bites, you know, but you just can't stop, right? So yeah, it's weird. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, baked, that moment that you can point to, you know, in your career where you're like, you did, you know, you created this thing, baked this thing, and you're just like, you knew in that moment that you could do this professionally. I think it was, you know, when I realized that I had kind of nailed Making focaccia, you know, I mean, it's just, it's such a simple bread to be able to make it complex and to be able to make it at a level that other people don't, that was, that was a big deal for me. I mean, when, you know, there, there's times where, you know, they'll come out of the oven and I look at them like, dude, I don't want to sell those. Like, I, I just want, I want them surrounding me. I want them, you know, I don't, I don't want, these are my kids. I don't ever want them leaving my side. You know, there, there's times where that happened and uh, I'm like, oh my God, that is so good. I cannot believe that. And when, when you taste it and you know that it was like fermented just right, you know, you had, you nailed all the timing, the weather was working with you. Everything was just beautiful. And the, those, those moments are kind of, they're ethereal. They're very fleeting. Everything that we do revolves around time and temperature. And when those things aren't in sync, eh, it's going to be a little off this way or a little off that way. And that's not to say it still won't be really, really good, but to hit that peak, man, that, that doesn't happen every single time. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is, though. If you are, is there a favorite episode, moment, scene that stands out? Or if you aren't, is there a culinary influencer, somebody along the lines of, you know, Emeril or whoever that appeared on kind of TV and stuff that, that you kind of gravitated towards when you were kind of coming up? Yeah, well, Chef Tom Colicchio. Like I, I stated earlier, I was a fan of his way, way, way back. And now he's on TV like all the freaking time. He does these live Instagram things, which are great. And, you know, mostly I just like the kind of person that he is. He is an outstanding cook, but he's a good man. He's a good guy. You know what I mean? He's just, he's, he's, he's a, a good person. And it's, it's not, you know, I, there's probably lots of them out there, but this happens to be one I, I see, you know what I mean? So definitely him. I am a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. Do I have a favorite episode? I suppose. Uh, the Bologna one was absolutely amazing, but there's a lot of them that I really, really enjoyed that I didn't think I would, right? Like, you know, he goes to Mexico or he goes to, say, you know, Laos or someplace where I, I wouldn't necessarily think of, right? And I'm like, oh my God, that was the best show. That was so good. And I, actually, I think it used to be on my Facebook page, you know, where it has like, maybe it was like the old version of Facebook or whatever, where you, you, you could put like your favorite quote or something like that. And, and it was, it was one of his and it said, uh, this tastes like it died screaming, which I thought was the 
funniest freaking thing I ever heard. I was like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I, I assume he was eating a rare steak at the time. I really just can't recall. But for some reason, it tastes like it died screaming. Just always, always tickled me. So, Where can uh, people find you? Social media, website, if they're a restaurant, they need bread, where can they reach you? Yeah, I mean, good luck with that, y'all. Like, it's I'm horrible, freaking horrible at social media. Uh, I do have a Facebook page, so feel free. I guess I'm probably more active on Instagram. So, you know, Amatia Breads, you know, message me. There's there's a chance I'll, I'll message you back. Um, I, I try to be really good about that. But I think, you know, like, I think it was, was it a couple of days before I even got back to you? Uh, possibly, but I think it, depending on how many messages people sometimes get, I think sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle. And, and also, if you're not connected with the person, then it's like you have to like accept it first and stuff like that. So there is some nuance to it. Yeah. Facebook Messenger is by far the worst. Like I uninstall that on my phone so often because I feel like it just screws up my phone. And so, you know, and there's nothing on there. And it's not like I'm getting Facebook messages. So I'll just take it off. And then all of a sudden there's like five messages pop up, but I can't open them unless you've got like messenger. Right. So I'm like, God dang it. Now I got to go and load that thing back up again. So yeah, those are the two places. I don't have a website. Do websites do anything anymore? It's a good question. I feel like I should have a discord, but I don't. But So Instagram, Facebook, that's me. You can, uh, I think all my pertinent information is there. If you want to send me like a snail mail something. Uh, I, I used to joke with my family that I've got to be one of the most findable people I, I know. Like, you know, my address, my phone number, all that shit is just sitting out there on the internet, you know? Feel free to say hi. Then you can also reach me by email, um, which is matiabreads at gmail.com. And that's it. That's all I got, man. I wish I had more. I wish I had something like really cool to tell you. Really appreciate you, you know, coming on the podcast again. I've had some sandwiches, then they've, you know, used your breads and it's definitely changed. The most notable one is the the hot link at Ray Ray's. They used to do just kind of like white bread. Then they, they brought on your bread, your rolls, and it completely changes just the whole experience of that sandwich. So different stuff at Rock Mill when they were open and, and you were doing stuff for them before the pandemic too and, and all that stuff. So it's definitely noticeable. It's high quality, good stuff. It's awesome to be able to kind of talk to somebody doing a little different, you know, not doing the bakery, doing the wholesaling and everything like that. And hopefully, you know, you're able to get that bigger space and keep growing and everything. But if you ever need anything from us, open invitation to come back on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Good luck with everything post-pandemic and stay in touch. Thanks. I really appreciate the time. I hope I didn't take too much. I feel like I, I should add, I didn't tell you where you could get them. Cleaver, Wario's, local, Coastal Local in the North Market, Ray Ray's, of course. And, and, and if, you, if you're curious, reach out and, and I'll be more than happy to, to let you know. But we do Lupo, Emmett's and German Village. So yeah, there's quite a few. Uh, but anyways, thank you very much. I appreciated it. Clearly, I had a lot to say. I had no idea I was going to chat your ear off this much. So thanks for letting me get it off my chest. You know, the less talking that I do, the, the better, the more interesting it is for everybody else. So. Well, I think it's nice to know that. Yeah. Uh, if you need space filler, clearly I'm going to be your guy. Stay in touch. If you need anything from me, just let me know. Good luck with everything. Thanks. I appreciate it. Same to you.
Big thanks to chef owner Matt Swint of Mattia Breads again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of, you know, his off day. He's got weird hours uh, because he is a baker. So all that stuff happens kind of in the middle of the morning, early morning, you know, 2, 3 a.m., stuff like that. So it was really awesome for him to be able to kind of take some time and come on the podcast and share his story. And then also, you know, just kind of the background on the wholesale business, too, as well, which is a perspective that I just think people don't really get too often. So kind of a peek behind the curtain there. Make sure to follow him on Instagram at Mattia Breads. Uh, also check out their Facebook page as well. Make sure to check us out on Instagram at SpoonMob if you're not already following us. Also check out our website, SpoonMob.com. There's profiles, different chef profiles. Everybody's been on the podcast. There's a page for them too as well. A bunch of different dish photos, courses, and stuff that we've eaten. You know, there's anything from sushi restaurants to stuff here in Columbus to Michelin starred restaurants. All that stuff is up there, uh, all the places that we've been. So check all that stuff out. There's always something kind of new going up. Um, you know, we try and get over to Instagram as soon as we can too as well, but there's always a little bit of a lag time. Uh, make sure to subscribe or follow the podcast, whatever platform that you're using, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Spreaker, Breaker, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. We're on everything. So uh, just give us a follow. Make sure to follow or subscribe. Each platform is a little different to the podcast, wherever uh, you're using that. We also have a YouTube channel. Um, mostly it's just the audio form of the podcast that we do, but if you want to subscribe to our YouTube channel, it's pretty small. We haven't really dove into doing too, too much video. Uh, we do have a TikTok. Uh, we have not started really doing much with it. So eventually we'll kind of do some more stuff with it too, as well. Just trying to figure all that out, but, uh, you can find us on there too, as well. Facebook and Twitter at SpoonMob1. But yeah, check all that stuff out. Really appreciate everybody listening. Check out past episodes of Chefs and Guests. You know, we've had a bunch of different Psalms, restaurant owners, chefs, uh, uh, last week was sous chef Daniel Kamel over at Veritas. So make sure to give that episode a listen. Before him, we had Kendi Warden, who's a sommelier on. Thatcher Baker Briggs, who's a sommelier. Greg Stokes. Uh, we've had Brandon Grissetti, who's a restaurant owner. Sheridan Sue, who's a chef. Uh, over out in Vegas. So just give all that stuff a listen. You know, there's just different perspectives, people all over the country and stuff and, and local here too. And we're just trying to talk to as many interesting people that we can kind of find that, that want to do it too as well. We got a bunch of stuff in the works too as well. So more episodes coming uh, your way too. They always come out on Thursdays, Wednesdays, parts now known. Uh, we're about halfway through that. Just did an episode recapping the Roadrunner documentary. So if you haven't seen that or thought about checking out the documentary and kind of wanted to know what's what, or if you missed anything or didn't know any backstory after you did see it, give that episode a listen. And we're back into season six, the Cuba episode. And that came out yesterday. And then we'll be moving through season six and seven and so forth and everything like that too. So, so check that out. We have a lot of fun doing that. But otherwise, appreciate everybody listening. Continue to help spread the word. You know, really appreciate just kind of the word of mouth and how it's kind of grown and everything like that. So we're just going to keep doing what we're doing and continue to just kind of put out good podcast episodes and interesting content on Instagram and everything. And uh, feel free to reach out to us too. Uh, you can either reach us at spoonmob at yahoo.com is our email, or you can reach us through the website. There's a contact portal at the bottom. You can send in questions, comments, feedback, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast too as well if you get a chance. But again, super appreciative, super thankful to everybody listening, and we will talk to you guys next week.